it's you're just like walking through the airport and you see the next best diet book on the bookshelf and pick it up and start eating. Obviously, it's a far less scientific process. And in my opinion, because what you put in your body is what your cells are going to be made out of. It's almost like playing with fire. You know, in my opinion, that's the same as just like taking some medication willy nilly because, you know, it worked out for some person that, you know, you know, it's not necessarily what's going to work for you. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Robert Kennedy. In my judgment, physical fitness is basic to all forms of excellence. Our guest today, Ben Greenfield, has spent his entire adult life as an elite performer in all facets of physical fitness. Ben's been named multiple times as one of the top 100 most influential people in health and fitness, and for the past several years has coached the world's top CEOs, biohackers, professional athletes from all major sports, including the NBA, NFL, and beyond, on optimizing their health and fitness. He's a former top-ranked triathlete, a New York Times bestseller, author, and a world-renowned speaker. Quite a renaissance man. Ben, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Hey, what's up, Robert? It's been a little while. It has been. Sorry to miss you, the event uh, a few weeks ago. Wait, which event? Uh, MMT event. Oh, yeah. Were yeah. you there? Yeah. Yeah, down in Cabo. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you have a unique story, including for starters that you were homeschooled until you were 16. Can you share a bit about that experience and, and some of your early days? Well, being homeschooled was, um, you know, it works for some people. I am and always have been a pretty self-motivated learner, meaning total bookworm. You know, growing up, I love to read. I love to write. I love to study. I was happy as a clam, kind of like my own twin boys are just curled up with a book 24-7. So for me, it worked out pretty well to be homeschooled. I was able to learn at a pretty accelerated pace and graduate high school when I was 14. You know, it's still homeschooling for me back in that day was largely curriculum based. I'm actually a bigger fan now of more life-based experiential education, which is what I'm doing with my boys. It's more unschooling than homeschooling in which, you know, their math curriculum is building a tree fort and chemistry is cooking in the kitchen and culture is traveling around the world. We just returned from Dubai last night. And I kind of like that mode of education even more than sitting around the kitchen table in kind of a stereotypical traditional homeschooling environment. But it turned out okay for me just because I got lucky, you know, just I'm, I'm wired up in that I I just love to study. I love to read. I love to explore, and I'm I'm intensely curious. So um, yeah, it was it was a good experience. You know, I, most of my social outlets were playing sports, a little bit of theater, you know, a little bit of music thrown in. But yeah, it was it was a good experience. You know, I grew up in North Idaho, which has pretty liberal education laws, so there was no risk of a social worker showing up at the door uh, and uh, throwing me into school. So. So it was good. I, I feel like it probably gave me a little bit of a step up when it comes to being able to think creatively outside the box, being a little bit of a, you know, more of a leader than a follower. And um, yeah, I think it served me pretty well. So did you go right from homeschooling to college? I did. And I should have taken like one or two gap years because college was a rough transition for me. You know, going from a pretty traditional homeschooling Christian yeah. conservative family into the environment of frat parties and, and beer and women and <laughs> yeah. and a lot's going on for a few years there that probably held me back. I 
I feel like I, I could have used that tuition money and bought a around the world plane ticket and gotten the socializing and all that out of my system so that I, I was able to focus and thrive in, in a more academic setting. But, you know, nonetheless, it is what it is. So, yeah, I went straight from high school into college. But you were valedictorian of your class, right? I was. <laughs> and I, I was also the, the king of the prom party. And uh, every yeah, year, the most popular yeah. kid in my entire grade. Yeah, every year. That is quite a jump. Well, clearly you made the transition pretty well because you applied to and got accepted by several medical schools, but then decided not to go. You had been studying science and as you said, were kind of a uh, bookworm. It sounds like that was your goal. What, what, what changed your mind once you, you finally started uh, applying? Really just the complete disillusionment with modern medicine based on me working in the private sector in hip and knee surgical sales for about six months prior to what would have been uh, me going on to and attending medical school and just getting a very nasty taste in my mouth for medicine, for the way the insurance system is run, the unnecessary paperwork all the doctors have to do, the fact that most of the physicians were burnt out and had very little time to even focus on relationship or quality of care with each patient. Had I known more back in the day, I probably would have pivoted and gone more towards like, concierge medicine or functional medicine or naturopathic medicine. But uh, knowing what I knew back then, which was, you know, I was already a personal trainer and a nutritionist and a strength conditioning coach. I kind of got back into fitness for a little while and just, you know, never wound up leaving it, finding a great deal of success, especially in the media component of, of fitness and wellness. And, you know, wound up doing a lot more eventually of what I do now, which is, you know, media production, a lot of online consulting with a small number of executive clientele and writing, investing in the health and fitness and wellness space and uh, advising companies and also uh, owning and operating my own supplements and and functional foods company. So I I feel like I'm still able to help people in a way that I kind of wanted to help people or wanted to help people with the idea of becoming a physician. But, you know, now uh, I actually research and network with a lot of physicians and wind up referring a lot of people to, to good medical care. So, I feel like I'm still scratching that itch to be a caretaker and to help people out. And you had all these jobs then when you were in college, right? And you were running these businesses. Yeah, I think being homeschooled, again, kind of gave me a skewed perspective on productivity and yeah. on what a young human mind might be capable of. So I was you know, working four jobs as a bartender, a barista, a personal trainer, a tennis instructor in college and taking about 28 to 30 credits a semester. You know, wound up doing a master's degree and five years, you know, between my time I was 15 and 20. I squeezed a lot into those few years. That's pretty incredible. So did you give out your fitness training card to people at the bar and tell them to call you the next morning? Well, it was kind of funny. I, I also worked at a, at a French bakery across the street <laughs> from the gym. So I'd, I'd go to the French bakery at about 4 a.m., open that place up, get all the baked goods prepared and begin selling like croissants and eclairs at 6 a.m. to the same people that I would wind up personal training uh, for fat loss at about 6 p.m. that evening. So, so yeah, I, I did have a little bit of a hustle going there. So did you sleep? Not much, but when you're that age, as you know, the human nervous system is, is pretty resilient. And, you know, I've warned my children about this, you know, that you'll go for a period of time when you feel as though you're unstoppable and relatively bulletproof to the assailants that you throw your immune system and nervous system. But you got to pay the piper eventually, you know, whether it's your gut whether it's your immune system, whether it's a you know, lack of melatonin production or pineal gland issues later on in life. So it's best to not 
burn the candle at both ends, despite your body being able to during certain phases of your life. Well, that's interesting. We'll dig into that more. Uh, I want to flip back to the athletics because clearly you've always been, uh, you know, it's important to you and been a high level athlete. How much of what you've achieved do you think is innate talent or how much is it the training regimens and things that you have developed? From an athletic standpoint, purely the latter. Like I mentioned, I grew up as a complete bookworm, a total geek, you know, played violin. I was president of the chess club. I was good at speech and debate, but probably par or even subpar at most sports, aside from tennis, which I wound up going on to and playing at college. But even tennis, that was my initial foray into physical culture was learning how to become faster, stronger, more powerful for tennis by utilizing smart training, you know, just watching a lot of movies and videos on training, reading a lot of books on training and periodization and how to properly structure your programming and really putting a lot of that science into my tennis practice so that I could almost use book smarts to become a better tennis player. And really for me, from triathlon to bodybuilding to obstacle course racing, you know, volleyball, swimming, everything I've done, I've taken knowledge and hard training and smart training and applied that to sport because I've always fought an uphill battle. I do not come from an athletic family. I am not naturally talented when it comes to body awareness, when it comes to strength, power, any of that stuff. I actually do have to work pretty hard for it. You know, really at my core, I'm a hopeless romantic who loves to sit around and read. And, you know, I I cry during drama movies (laughs) and I'm anything but a jock at heart, but I kind of kind of had to paint myself into this hardcore athlete, you know, going through college and trying to prove myself. And, you know, then the next 10 years doing all these masochistic death races and Ironman triathlons and training with the Navy SEALs and doing, doing all these crazy things. I think partially because I wanted to prove that I was a hardcore athlete and not just like this kind of like soft nerd. And so now I've, I've kind of wound up, I guess, in a way, giving myself the best of both worlds, meaning I've, I've taught myself how to be tough how to be resilient and how to be athletic, but I still retain some of the intellectualism that I think comes far more naturally to me. So who did you want to prove it to? Uh, Myself and also the world. Being homeschooled, you are kind of like the odd man out. So I would show up at at practices for basketball or tennis or soccer or whatever and really have to kind of like work harder to prove myself, you know, almost like harder than a lot of the other kids. And then once I realized that I really like sports, that they seem to kind of like fuel me, that I love to train, et cetera, I kind of stuck with it, but still had to fight that uphill battle to constantly challenge myself to become better because none of it came naturally to me. So, you know, I, I think a big part of it too is that myself and many other young men growing up in today's culture do not go through a rite of passage, do not go through that marked identification of crossing the threshold into manhood. And so I would hope that my own boys, who will definitely go on their own rite of passage, who will you know, they'll have a week out in the wilderness on on their own when they're 13 years old. They will be recognized as having become men after going through that little vision quest. And, you know, I would think that after going through something like that as a young man and being identified as a young man, being given that nod of approval, they've crossed the threshold, they might feel less pressure to say, you know, so, you know, maybe when they're whatever, 17 years old to go sign up for an Ironman triathlon or, you know, some hardcore Spartan race not for fun, not for challenge, but to instead prove to the world that there are certain something. I think that to a certain extent, I fell into that during much of the hard training and masochistic type of competition that I did. It was trying to prove to the world versus me doing it to challenge myself. And I think part of that was just the same thing that a lot of guys face these days. And that's 
you know, the question of, am I a man? Am I good enough? Do I need to prove myself? Do I need to fuel my ego? Because they never actually feel like they became a man at some point. There's not that marked transition from boyhood into manhood that I think should be there from a cultural standpoint. So from not being athletic to running 128 races, 12 Ironmans, winning gold medal in the long course triathlon, to someone listening to this who maybe has never done even one of these before, like how do you keep up the motivation? Now I know now you talked about where it comes from, but to compete at that level so many times, both like the mind and body <laughs> to be ready for a challenge like that. Like, is it, has it gotten easier or is it as hard every time for you, but you've just learned how to power through it? It's always hard. You do have to learn how to deal with the suffering, with the pain. You do have to roll out of bed and train, even when you don't want to feel like rolling out of bed to train. You know, for me, being a CEO of a company, you know, and, and putting in, in many cases, 12 to 16 hour work days and trying to squeeze in the training in the early morning or the late evening or in between everything else. Yeah, I mean, like it's as Teddy Roosevelt would have called it the strenuous life, right? Like the work never stops. And if you really want to have a strong physical body, you know, in addition to, let's say, a strong position of mental faculties and, and good financial status and, and fulfillment of Maslow's hierarchy all at the same time, it does take a lot in terms of just focused training, consistent training, smart training. I really do for myself quite a bit of like high intensity interval training, heavy weight lifting, and kind of like quality over quantity. So I don't do a lot of like long runs. You know, for me, a run might be 20 minutes on the treadmill of two minutes as hard as I can go with one minute recovery between each. I wouldn't go on a five hour bike ride like a lot of my Ironman triathlon competitors in my category. I would instead go out on like an hour and a half long bike ride, but it would be indoors, you know, on a compu trainer with the power extremely precisely quantified with, with very quantified intervals and blood lactate testing or, you know, hypoxia, that, that type of thing. So I, you know, even back in the day, I really started to do a lot of biohacking with something like triathlon or endurance sports just to kind of get that advantage due to limited time availability to train. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's not easy. Just like anything in life, you got to work for it. But I mean, if, if an Ironman triathlon was easy, it, would, it really wouldn't be something people would, you know, see and think, oh, that's quite the accomplishment or that, that's really like climbing your own personal Mount Everest, you know? And, and so, yeah, it does take a lot of, a lot of focus. Interesting. Well, you mentioned biohacking and you've established yourself uh, as an expert on biohacking. And I know I've extensively experimented on your own body. There's a lot of misinformation out there about, I think, what biohacking is and what we should be doing or not doing. I'm curious how you define it and, and the methods that you've actually found to be some of the methods you found to be most successful. Sure. I, I think biohacking has become like a popular, slightly annoying kind of catch all term for everything <laughs> from like, jumping on a trampoline to get fit to putting butter in your coffee to lose weight. And really, you know, the original biohackers were truly like computer hackers, right? They were doing things like implanting chips in their fingertips or magnetic implants in their ears to hear better or compasses in the chest to vibrate every time you'd face true north. Like they actually would use hardware to enhance what they called the wetware, right? Their human body. And I don't think that you have to go that extreme to be considered a biohacker or, or to incorporate something like a biohack, but really it's just using science or technology to enhance your biology or to get results in a more efficient or fast manner than you would be able to without said hack, you know? And so, for example, it doesn't have to be something completely unnatural to be a biohack, right? You don't have to get 
like, uh, I don't know, like a bionic arm and install over your forearm. Instead, um, for example, you know, if you take something like sunlight, we know that sunlight is good for you. We know that the UVA and UVB radiation is good for the skin. And we know that it enhances vitamin D production and normalizes your circadian rhythm. And when you get sunlight early in the day, it enhances your sleep cycles and, you know, increases your, your nitric oxide production, which is like Viagra for your whole body. And it helps out with your collagen, your elastin, your thyroid, your testosterone. But at the same time, many of us living in a post-industrial era, because we're relegated to indoor work or indoor jobs or don't get as much sunlight as our ancestors might have been exposed to, or perhaps we live in you know, Seattle or Portland or it's winter or whatever, we don't get that amount of sunlight, but you can biohack that, right? Like, for example, uh, like I mentioned, I just flew in from Dubai last night. So, you know, I had to work this morning indoors in my office, but I have a special pair of glasses I put on that simulate sunlight. And similarly, I have a special pair of in-ear earbuds that also simulates sunlight. So I'm getting sunlight in my ears, sunlight in my eyes. And I also flip on these infrared and red light panels in the office that simulate the infrared light that you get from the sun. And I'll stand in front of those for 10 to 20 minutes a day every morning. And so, you know, I'm using, I'm, I'm kind of like biohacking sunlight, right? Like I'm getting the equivalent of sunlight in my own office using what one could argue the biohacking technology. Another example of that would be we know that our ancestors spent a great deal of time outdoors barefoot because the earth actually emits an electrical field that's actually anti-inflammatory. And there's an enormous body of research on the anti-inflammatory benefits of touching the planet earth, of going outside barefoot, walking barefoot, you know, climbing trees, climbing rocks, et cetera, or even swimming in the ocean, walking on the sand. But again, that's something that might be difficult to do living in a post-industrial era. But for eight hours last night, I slept on the ground by plugging a mat into the wall next to my bed that just pulls all the negative ions from the earth up through the copper grounding plug of the house and allows me to sleep on that on a mat during the night, which would be, you know, also a biohack that's not necessarily unnatural, right? Like it's just like simulating something that we get in nature, but that we're unable to get based on our modern lifestyles. So for me, most of most of like the biohacking technology I use, whether it's cold or heat or light or earthing or grounding or, or supplements or anything like that, they're really just meant to kind of mimic in more concentrated sources or in more convenient sources what we get from nature. And I think that's really the best way to biohack. Those are good examples. I understand the sun and the glasses. I understand the sun and the other thing. Can you explain the sun and the earbuds? Because that, that, one, that one's not intuitive to me. Yeah, well, you have photoreceptors all over your skin. This is why, let's say, if you're wearing a sleep mask and you have blackout curtains in your bedroom to help you to sleep better due to the absence of light, because we know that artificial light can shut down your melatonin production. But let's say there's a computer on or another light on somewhere in the room and your skin is exposed to that. Well, you'll still get poor sleep despite you, say, wearing a sleep mask or having blackout curtains, which is why it's important to just like unplug everything in the bedroom or even buy like, LED light blocking stickers off of Amazon that you can place over things that that light up a room, right? Whenever I go to a hotel room and, you know, it's lit up like a Christmas tree when you turn off the lights in the hotel room, like I kind of like go through and unplug a whole bunch of stuff just because of that. Now, you do have photoreceptors all over your body. They even did a study that showed that a tiny, tiny light shown at the back of the knee actually affected sleep cycles, even in the absence of all our factors. Well, those photoreceptors also exist in your ear. And 
the research in Finland has shown that when you target the photoreceptors in the ear, it affects seasonal affective disorder, meaning can eliminate or lower occurrence of seasonal affective disorder. And it can also regulate the circadian rhythm by shifting your circadian rhythm, meaning that at whatever time of day that you were to put lights in your ears, it's going to tell your body that it's bright sunlight, that it's daytime, and that it's morning. So ideally, if you've traveled and you're a few hours off your time zone, when it is morning, wherever you happen to have traveled to, you put those in your ears, and if you can't get outdoors into the sunlight, it's going to send your body a pretty strong message that it's daytime. And you can also use it as a hack for other situations, like let's say you are someone who typically goes to bed at 10 p.m., but you've been invited out to a party, and you know you're going to need to be up to 1 a.m. at that party. Well, you put those things in your ears right before you go to the party, and it kind of gives you like a like a little wake me up, right? It sends your body a message that says, yo, it's daytime. You, you know, you can keep on rocking and rolling. So that's the idea is it's just based off the fact that photoreceptors exist all over your body on the surface of your skin, and they're pretty dense inside uh, the surface of your ears. So it's a light. That is fascinating. So if you're under the covers, does that block the light? Yes. Okay. Yeah, if your body is under the covers, that would theoretically block the light, but many of us have arms or legs kind yeah. of strewn out from underneath the covers or the face, et cetera. So what I do is in the bedroom, I make sure that there's really not a lot of lights. And if a device does emit light, then I'll buy those, like I mentioned, LED light blocking stickers off of Amazon um, or something else that will cover up the light. And then the other thing that I do is I just got rid of all the light bulbs in the bedroom and replaced them with red incandescent light bulbs, which basically simulate porch light or firelight or candle. And so when I flip on the light, if I need to pee in the middle of the night or whatever, I'm not getting my melatonin levels suppressed because all it is is red light. And it's really the blue light from traditional LED right. lamps or you know normal light bulbs. And everything's blue these days, I've noticed. Yeah, it seems like every, oh, ironically, everything. like every light, every clock is like blue. <laughs> I know. Every button yeah. on the printers, they're all, they're all blue. Yeah. And obviously the other hack would be just to get those mildly unattractive blue light blocking glasses that are kind of like a red or an orange tinted lens that you could wear in the evening. But again, I'm like, if you get up during the night to pee, it's easier to just flip on the light and have red incandescent than to fumble for your glasses and try to find those on the bedside or, you know, or maybe you left them in the kitchen or whatever. Interesting. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. 
I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Another challenge people have, I think, in understanding health and nutrition is the fact that there are consistently new fad diets coming out. And I, I know, you know, keto's talked about a lot and you've written, talked a lot about keto. Like, do you think that keto is is something that is a short-term thing or can it be a long-term solution for people? Because I've, I've read really opposite opinions on this. Well, you know, the, the idea behind ketosis is, you know, returning to the discussion of our ancestors, kind of natural in that, you know, if the human body were need to need to go for a long period of time without food, it can rely upon these these ketones, which essentially are produced through the burning of your own adipose tissue and free fatty acids, rather than utilizing exogenous sources of fuel for energy. And the cool thing is that a growing body of research has demonstrated that these same ketone bodies, whether you're getting them through burning your own fat, or whether you're getting them from any of these fancy new supplements like ketone esters or ketone salts actually can be very anti-inflammatory. They can serve as a stable fuel source for the liver, for the heart, for the diaphragm, most notably in cases of like Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, even for the brain. So there's like this mild health therapeutic effect of these ketone bodies as well. Now, the issue is that a modern ketogenic diet is not producing ketosis through, say, fasting and high intake of plants and vegetables and you know low level physical activity throughout the day but is often instead achieving it through like heavy cream fat bombs half a stick of butter in your coffee and a bunch of supplements and the problem is that with that type of scenario especially a high saturated fat type of scenario many people genetically do not do well with that many people for example you know up to 20% of the population in some areas they have familial hypercholesteremia which yeah. means that a ketogenic diet, high fat, low carb is going to shove cholesterol levels through the roof. And those people would do better on something like uh, a Mediterranean diet, for example, or uh, for example, a, a Catavan diet, meaning that there's a group of islanders, the island of Catava, where almost everybody has familial hypercholesteremia, but no heart disease. And the reason for that is because their diet is highly protective. It's not ketogenic. It's like a lot of fish and, uh, fresh citrus fruits and tubers and vegetables and coconut, uh, like coconut meat, coconut flesh, coconut water. And so that would be a diet more appropriate for people with natural high cholesterol levels. Some people actually have a very high inflammatory response to saturated fat, and it can damage the gut microbiome, and it can cause rampant inflammation. And for those people, sure, perhaps they can get away with a ketogenic diet, but it shouldn't be like cream and cheese and butter and lard, but should instead be almost like a low carbohydrate version of a Mediterranean diet, right? Like lots of fish oil and olive oil and avocado and olives and seeds and nuts and things like this. 
Some people have poor gallbladder or poor liver function due to high alcohol intake or perhaps they've had their gallbladder removed, et cetera. And those people just can't digest a high amount of fat. It gives them fatty stool or gives them stomach upset. And perhaps they could do a ketogenic diet, but they have to supplement with a lot of lipase or a lot of bile supplements or things that help them to digest all these fats. So ultimately, the takeaway message is that ketosis can work if you're genetically adapted to that type of diet. And even then, if you have high levels of physical activity, like me, like I exercise a lot, but I also limit carbohydrates. However, I'm not fully ketogenic. I use what's called cyclic ketosis, meaning that I don't eat many carbohydrates the entire day. I'm forcing my body to burn fatty acids the entire day. And then at the very end of the day, I do an exercise session, like weightlifting or high-intensity interval training or something like that. And then I have all carbohydrates at dinner. And the reason that works out really well is because A, dinner is kind of like the one meal of the day that tends to fluctuate the most, that tends to often be social, that tends to be that meal that we might be more likely to cheat on. And so saving all your carbohydrates for that meal, rather than kind of like using your carbohydrate paycheck earlier on in the day, can be a way to ensure that you are able to kind of have your cake and eat it too. And then two other things will that be, if you do exercise in the later afternoon or early evening, and then have all your carbohydrates at the end of the day, those carbohydrates don't stay in your bloodstream for a long period of time. They don't spike your blood sugar that high because you've just exercised. So they're more likely to go into muscle or go into liver and get stored away as carbohydrates for the next day's activity. And then three, some amount of carbohydrates in that can help with your, your melatonin and your serotonin production so you sleep a little bit better. So I think cyclic ketosis like that, especially for an active person, is better than ketosis. And I also think there's a large portion of the population that just should be careful with a high-fat, low-carb diet anyways, especially if the high-fat, low-carb diet is like this modern, newfangled version of a ketogenic diet that's like, these, you know, keto donuts and butter and lard and, you know, all that jazz. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Ben. Whenever I'm doing an interview and someone asks me about the best productivity tool I use, my answer is SaneBox. I've been using SaneBox for four years and cannot manage my email without it. SaneBox artificial intelligence monitors your inbox and moves email you don't need to read right away to your Sane Later folder. All that's left in your inbox is the important stuff. You can also snooze emails and have them come back to you in your inbox at the right time. If you know how email folders work, then you know how SaneBox works. Find an email in the wrong folder, just move it. There's nothing to learn, nothing to install. SaneBox works directly with every single email server or service that's ever been created. Get a free two-week trial and a $25 credit by visiting sanebox.com elevate. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash elevate. And we're back with Ben Greenfield. So right before the break, you were talking about all these variations. And it was something I was going to ask you anyway. What I've seen, it just shows how personalized this stuff is. And so I'm curious, like how you would advise people. Because what I see on, you know, these days with social media and stuff, is when people are doing something, they're very in their other people's face often about it. And you'll see them do one last year and then, then, oh, everyone has to be vegan or has to be keto or has to be this or paleo or whatever. It seems like there's actually some danger in that. You know, there's a line I've always heard, one man's medicine is another man's poison. How do you advise people here with some of the disconnect between some of the Eastern and Western medicine in terms of like, 
where do they go to? They might go to their doctor and they don't even want them to do any of this stuff um, or they might do it themselves and they really should get their blood checked. I actually had a friend who had that cholesterol thing. So he went on keto and his cholesterol went like through the roof, but he was he was having his blood checked by his doctor. So he caught that. Mm-hmm. This seems like a difficult thing for most people to navigate who are trying to work on their health. Yeah, a few things. Uh, first of all, just a quick aside. You know, I'm not saying high cholesterol is bad, but hypercholesteremia, we're, we're not talking high cholesterol. Like I purposefully keep my cholesterol levels above 200, my total cholesterol above 200, because a high cholesterol in that range has been shown to be favorable for testosterone and hormones, for cognition, and even for overall longevity and reduced all-cause risk of mortality. What I'm talking about is familial hypercholesteremia, where it's literally like 400, 500, 600, like yeah. super high, you know, and that, that's, that's where you need to be careful. It's just a, a quick clarification there. Now, with regards to your question about diet, yeah, I mean, the dirty little secret in the fitness industry is that if you want to make a lot of money, you write a diet book, and preferably it'd be some myopic diet that says this is the perfect human diet for everybody, because you can sell more books that way, and your diet will become more popular and brandable. You know, I, I literally just finished writing a book that comes out this January called Boundless, and in that book, there is no one-size-fits-all diet. There's actually an entire chapter on how to customize your diet to you. But I do have in that book an explanation of the 10, 10 different diets that I use with like people who I consult with just based on what their needs are, like lowering inflammation or increasing sports performance or increasing fertility or you know pregnancy or something like that. So I pick and choose from a large number of diets, from a ketotic diet to a low-carb Mediterranean diet to a vegan diet to a carnivore diet. You know, There's a lot of different variants that work well for different people. But if you want to figure out what is the best diet for you, there are a few steps that you can take. Number one would be just a basic salivary genetic test, right? Test your DNA. You could use 23andMe. They don't test for a huge variety of SNPs. You could test with the the health nucleus in LA and get your whole genome sequenced. Uh, There's a company up in Canada called the DNA Company that tests for a decent number of SNPs. But basically, once you know your genetic data, you know A, where you came from, so you can get a decent idea of what your ancestors ate, whether it's a you know, Hispanic or Sub-Saharan African or Southeast Asian or Northern European, like you can look at the indigenous diet of the people that came before you and roughly approximate that that's going to be close to what your body is equipped to eat. Meaning like I'm largely Northern European. So I do, I do pretty good with like salted foods, fermented foods, uh, wild caught fish, decent amount of meat, uh, not a huge amount of saturated fats, but like about, you know, 10 to 12% of my total fat intake from saturated fats and, you know, some small berries, uh, not a ton of starches and vegetables. And whereas somebody from, you know, a sub-Saharan African or Southeast Asian population, they might be more rice-based or fruit-based or, you know, less of the big fatty animals and, you know, more small game or more fish. So, you know, it's highly dependent on ancestry and genetics. And furthermore, if you take your genetic data that you test with and export it to one of these websites that will give you a deep dive into certain predispositions that you might have, let's say like diabetes or heart disease or prostate cancer or anything like that, you can dress up your diet with certain supplements and certain foods that can decrease risk of those diseases. Like if you have a high risk of atherosclerosis based on your genetics, you could include a lot of green tea or flavanols from berries or fermented foods or some of the things that could decrease risk of that actually manifesting and becoming an issue. So websites like that would that you could export your data to would be like Genetic Genie or MyHeritage or Stratagene or you know, any of these other companies that will kind of like take that genetic data 
and really allow you to delve more deeply into health data that you can get from that. Furthermore, certain people have food allergies, right? So there are certain foods you just shouldn't have regardless of which diet you're eating. And there's a really, really good food allergy test you can get. Most kind of give you a laundry list of false positives. There is one company called Cyrex. Your physician would have to order for you from that website, C-Y-R-E-X. But it's a very good food allergy test that gives you good data, well-verified, scientifically robust, that does not result in a laundry list of false positives on 100 different foods that you shouldn't be eating. And so... You know, that's another one would be a food allergy test. Uh, just a full-spectrum blood test where you're looking at thyroid, white blood cells, red blood cells, you know, inflammatory markers, what's my vitamin D status, what's my magnesium status. That can be really good for knowing which supplements that you might need to fill in the gaps. Like if your vitamin D is high and you start taking a vitamin D supplement because it worked out well for your neighbor, then you might develop vitamin D toxicity because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin that can actually become toxic. Or if you feel like you should get on some strange, whatever, Ayurvedic herb for increasing testosterone and your total testosterone is just fine, then that might not be what you need to do. It might be that your free testosterone is low. So you should be going after like cortisol and yoga and breath work and stress management because you're making testosterone just fine. It's just that you're so stressed out that it's not becoming bioavailable and free. So you've got a genetic test, you've got a food allergy test, you got a blood test, and then a couple other that can be helpful would be a a stool test to look at your gut, right? Yeast, parasites, fungus, uh, whether or not you need to take certain strains of probiotics, whether or not perhaps you need to do some kind of a gut cleansing diet for you know eight to twelve weeks before launching into whatever other diet that's going to be more of like your long term diet for life. And I think gut data can be really really eye opening because the gut, you know, in functional medicine is kind of like where you start for all health because the gut has an impact on the brain, it has an impact on the immune system, it has an impact on the hormonal system. And so I think that a stool test is really good. And there are companies that will test the entire biome of the stool, like Viome or Longevity. There are other companies that will just give you a basic idea of the most important inflammatory markers in the gut. I like one from Genova Diagnostics called the GIFX test. But stool is really good. And then finally, if you want a really, really clear picture of what's going on with you hormonally, like melatonin, cortisol, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. Maybe you want to know if you should be on like a bioidentical hormone replacement or you want to know why you can't sleep, et cetera. Uh, there's a urinary test called the Dutch test. And the Dutch test is really good. So it'll test for like neurotransmitters, for hormones, for a lot of the stuff that you can't get from blood or that you get an inaccurate picture from, from blood. And so once you put all this together, right? So when I have a client come to me and they're asking me for a diet program, that's the first thing I do is they'll do at minimum a saliva test, blood test, food allergy test, urinary test, and stool test. And then armed with that data, and then, you know, basically their activity levels, their body size, their body fat, et cetera, I can then sit down and say, okay, this is a diet you should be on. This is how many calories you should eat. These are the supplements you should be taking. The supplements you should be avoiding, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, if you're just like walking through the airport, you see the next best diet book on the bookshelf and pick it up and start eating. Obviously, it's a far less scientific process. And in my opinion, because what you put in your body is what your cells are going to be made out of. It's almost like playing with fire. You know, in my opinion, that's the same as just like taking some medication willy nilly because, you know, it worked out for some person that, you know, you know it's not necessarily what's going to work for you. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools and practical advice on leadership, management and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. 
A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Interesting. So I, yes, I think that proves how, how personal this stuff has become. And uh, I always say I'm going to write an award-winning book called uh, Eat Less and Work Out More and see if I can uh, make the New York Times bestseller list. Let's talk about fasting for a second. I know you, you recently led a fast, I think, where 10,000 people participated this year. Can you just explain why it's beneficial, some do's and don'ts, for people who have maybe are thinking about trying it. And also, this feels like another thing that pendulum shifted to me. Like years ago, it was like, eat lots of small meals. Don't eat big meals because of spiking your blood sugar. And now, you know, people are talking about, you know, fasting and having these windows. So I, I don't know whether it switched or, but I know you know the answer to this. So I, I'd love to, I'd love to understand it more. Okay, got it. Yeah. Another multifaceted question. <laughs> there are a lot of pieces in that. Yeah. Yeah. The latter part of your question is the easiest answer. Yes, there was a time when the fitness and wellness and diet industry used to say snack and graze to keep your metabolism elevated, which seemed to make sense based on the idea that there's a mild, very mild thermic effect of food, meaning every time you eat, it does take a certain number of calories to digest that food. But it turns out that the amount to which that fluctuates your blood sugar and the amount to which that takes you out of the potential for ketosis or fatty acid oxidation, research has since shown that eating any more than two square meals a day is not necessary to keep the metabolism elevated. And in fact, that constant snacking and grazing might be deleterious to your blood sugar levels and your metabolism. So we know that that's no longer true based on science, even though it seemed to make sense at the time it was being said, it's since been kind of discounted. Now, regarding fasting, we do know from religious practices, 
to modern science that there is something called cellular autophagy and a full body cleanup, uh, clarity of mental function, relief of gut symptoms, normalization of blood sugar that occurs when you go through certain periods of time where you limit the number of calories that are being shoved into the pie hole. Now, you know, some people take this to a pretty far degree, meaning that there are people doing, you know, now five day plus water fast, three day fast. It seems like sometimes there's almost like this little bit of a competition to see who can fast the most or the longest, or he's got the coolest fasting protocol. I had Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey on my podcast. And within a week he was painted as having an eating disorder because he mentioned that I think, you know, he's on the one meal a day protocol and does something like a 24 hour fast once a week. And you know, all of a sudden he has an eating disorder. And then I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think that there can be, especially for a busy person, cognitive and productivity benefits, just saving all of your calories until the end of the day, provided that that end of the day meal is a pretty glorious meal with adequate calories to sustain your body. And, you know, maybe it's a ribeye steak with some sweet potato fries and a glass of wine and some dark chocolate and some gelato and, you know, a nice salad, you know, so, so you're shoving all your calories into that very end of the day <laughs> protocol. So it can work. But that being said, there are all sorts of different types of fasting protocols that we can now find in the literature. For example, a researcher named Dr. Walter Longo found that uh, something called a fasting mimicking diet can have the same cellular autophagy and longevity enhancing effect as a long strict fast. Meaning if on a twice a year up to quarterly basis, you simply restrict the amount of calories that you eat to about 40% of what you normally eat, meaning if you normally eat 2,000 calories a day, you go for five days and you only eat 800 calories a day, that can be just as good for cleaning up your body as doing a five-day strict water fast for those five days. So it's very interesting in that mild calorie depletion can mimic what we might get through total calorie deprivation. So that's step one, is that two to four times a year, I think that it is beneficial to do about a five-day washout where you're only eating about 40% of the calories that you'd normally eat. Okay, so that, that would be just brief periods of time during the year that you do that. Furthermore, we know that having a compressed feeding window as many days of the year as possible is beneficial, meaning consuming most of your calories during an 8 to 12-hour window rather than all day long. So this would be considered like a 12 to 16-hour overnight fast. Women seem to do best metabolically keeping that window closer to 12 hours, while men seem to do best keeping that window in the 12 to 16-hour window with the more active men only needing closer to 12 hours and the less active men who might be more sedentary during the mornings, you know, not doing a CrossFit workout in the morning or, you know, some hardcore workout in the morning doing better with 16 hours, right? So as many days as possible the year, you have about a 12 to 16 hour period of time where you're simply not eating calories, such as 8 p.m. dinner, shove yourself away from dinner at 8 p.m. and you don't eat again until at least 8 a.m. and possibly, especially if you're a man, even until lunch. And then finally, uh, regarding the 24-hour fast, I am actually a fan of about two to four times a month simply having a 24-hour-ish dinner time to dinner time fast, meaning for me, it would involve eating Saturday's dinner then not eating until Sunday dinner, right? So you're basically skipping Sunday breakfast, skipping Sunday lunch, you get kind of hungry on Sunday around 2 or 3 p.m., and then you eat Sunday's dinner. Because I travel so much and because... Uh, fasting can have a pretty profound impact on limiting a lot of the effects of jet lag and the inflammation that builds up during travel. I'll often time that 24-hour fast that occurs during like overseas travel 
or a long travel period because it's simple for me to just drink a bunch of water on the airplane, not eat on the airplane because the food is crap anyways, and then just eat until I get to wherever I'm going at in the world to have my first meal. So if you travel a lot, you could simply kind of time that longer 24-hour fast when you happen to be traveling. But in a nutshell, I think a, a quarterly five-day calorie deprivation period, a daily 12 to 16-hour intermittent fast. And then one to two times a month, or when you travel, a 24-hour-ish fast is a very simple and sustainable way to get a lot of the benefits from fasting without being like cold and hungry and, and libido-less your whole life because you're just you know eating like a rabbit. <laughs> so what you're saying, right, that's very good advice. One of the things I'm, I'm laughing at is that I think about what the airlines do, which is on an overnight flight, they you, know, you get on, they give you alcohol, they serve you dinner, they serve you breakfast, you know, two hours later, this doesn't sound like it's going to set you up for success. No, I mean, like I mentioned, I, I flew in from Dubai yesterday. So I flew Dubai, Amsterdam, which is six and a half hours. I uh, had five bottles of water on that flight and then had four hours in the Amsterdam airport and then flew and didn't eat anything during that time. Just had two more giant things of sparkling water with some mint and some ginger for the stomach and then flew 10 hours Amsterdam to Seattle and drank a copious amount of water on that flight. And about halfway through that flight, I did have something in my bag that, that I'll sometimes have in there if I do happen to just get super hungry, you know, can't sleep or whatever, where, you know, it makes you more hungry if you're awake. That doesn't spike my blood sugar levels. So in that case, it was macadamia nuts. So I had about 10 to 12 macadamia nuts about halfway through that flight. And then finally, when I got home, unpacked, et cetera, you know, I had a lovely meal last night with my wife, you know, some nice, like half a roasted chicken and some sweet potato fries. And I had a little bit of like a, a homemade, like ginger snap molasses cookie that she made for dessert and a glass of wine. And so, you know, when I break the fast, I, I break the fast and I give my body the nutrients that it needs. But yeah, I mean, like from a jet lag standpoint, you feel so much better when you don't face stuff during a long haul flight. How much water per hour should you have on a flight? Well, it depends on if you're sleeping. Like if you're just crashing out and sleeping hard, which I'll often do, like I, I like to use CBD, high dose CBD to sleep on a flight. And so in that case, it wouldn't be that much water because I'm sleeping, right? In this case, I was in the UAE and I'm like, you know, I, I travel like a monk when I'm in the UAE. I don't bring any drugs or anything like that because I'm very careful in that area of the world. And so in this case, you know, I was more like napping on and off during the flight. So in a situation like that, my goal is about 16 ounces of water per hour, like a standard kind of like one of those large plastic water bottles they have on the flight. Yeah. And then there's like a special hack you can use to maximize the anti-inflammatory benefits of that water. And it's these dissolvable hydrogen tablets. You can buy them from a, a lot of different websites now. And you take these hydrogen tablets, you dissolve them in the water, and that amplifies the anti-inflammatory benefits. And so... What I do is a hefty serving of the supplement glutathione, both before and after the flight, as fasting as much as I can during the flight. And then I use that hydrogen-rich water during the flight. And then when I land, I have a, for a long-haul flight, I have a whole bunch of stuff that I do. Like I get outside barefoot or use that grounding or earthing mat that I talked about. I use the infrared lights that I talked about earlier. I have a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber in my basement. So I'll usually get in that for about one to two hours because it just drives oxygen into the tissue. So it helps you recover really fast. It's also very, very good for repair injuries. And then I have what's called a pulsed electromagnetic field table, a PEMF table. And I lay on that for about an hour and it just shuts down all the inflammation. And, you know, for me, back in the day, like a long haul flight like that, really it's 
to fully recover, you know, four to five days. Now I'm typically good to go the next day. Uh, that is a lot. I will <laughs> take down the notes. It's all it takes is all of that stuff in a hyperbaric chamber, but I can, I can understand why it works. And yeah, you can see the, the typically what people do on a flight is probably not helping them. We, we've alluded to recovery a lot. And I think, you know, recovery time is probably a big aspect of, of training and health. So what kind of damage can be done when people don't properly recover? I know you talked about this more, like if you run, if you burn at both ends, you kind of pay the piper. Uh, eventually. But in terms of thinking about fitness uh, regimens and, and intervals, how, how should people think about recovery time? Well, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack there, but the biggies are that, that people should take into consideration is A, the best way to know if you're fully recovered is not necessarily to pay attention to muscle soreness, but to instead pay attention to your nervous system. You know, for example, professional European football teams, which tend to be ahead of the curve when it comes to recovery and also performance, for the past decade, they've been using a metric called HRV to track that. Very simple. You can use a ring, a wristband, like a ring like Aura or a wristband like Whoop or an app like NatureBeat. And you simply flip that on in the morning and it actually spits out a score for you, like a readiness score or a recovery score. And what it's measuring is the actual nervous system, specifically HRV or heart rate variability what it measures is the amount of time in between each beat of the heart. And that indicates how well your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system are balanced. And so I look at my HRV every morning because it tells me whether I'm truly recovered. Typically, your, your nervous system takes about 24 to 48 hours longer to recover than your musculoskeletal system. And furthermore, your nervous system starts to give you clues in advance if you have some immune system dysfunction or impending injury or illness type of issues. So it's a really good way to nip any issues in the bud. So I encourage everybody, and I do this with all my clients, I keep track of their HRV levels. So look at HRV every single morning to give you an idea of whether or not your body is ready to train. And then some of the better ways to recover, aside from sleep, which is you know, that's the elephant in the room. That's the big, you know, you sleep in a quiet environment, in a dark environment, in a cold environment. That's the best way to amplify your sleep levels through the roof. A few of the things that you can do for recovering more quickly, number one would be that carbohydrate refeed that I talked about in the evening because it helps to restore your glycogen levels and your body can bounce back a lot more quickly if you're not completely restricting carbohydrate and doing like that full-on ketosis thing, especially if you're an athlete or someone who likes CrossFit or heavier amounts of exercise. I'm a huge fan of infrared therapy. I use a lot of infrared sauna and a lot of cold, meaning cold and heat really help to move blood flow around the body. So as many days of the week as possible, I'll hit the sauna. And then after 20 to 30 minutes in the sauna, do a cold shower or a cold bath or a cold soak. And there are a lot of companies now like making done for you cold baths that you can have in your house. Like uh, this is a newer company. I think I'm getting one this weekend. It's called the Morozko, M-O-R-O-Z-K-O. And it's like this big, beautiful cold tub that you can just like jump into. Just two to five minutes in a cold tub is amazing for recovery. I'm also a huge fan of doing uh, some kind of magnesium bath or some kind of float tank. Float tank and float tank centers and facilities are getting a lot more popular now. You can usually become a member and get in a float tank once a week. Your body soaks up all those minerals. It's, it's wonderful for the body. If you don't have that, you can just buy magnesium flakes and dump them into a bathtub and take a bath one or two times a week in those. And that's really great for recovery. And then one other that I'm a huge fan of is regular deep tissue work, whether self-inflicted or via massage 
And what my protocol looks like is every morning when I get up, I'll listen to a podcast or an audiobook or the news and I'll foam roll during that time and use like, you know, lacrosse balls, foam rollers, like anything that allows me to really dig into tissue. And that's like 10 to 15 minutes every morning, usually while the coffee is on or the water is heating for tea. I'm doing that. And so I figure by the end of the week, I'm getting like 75 minutes of good deep tissue work that keeps my body nice and supple. And even if I don't get a massage that week, that really helps. I do that like every single day. I even travel with little massage tools and massage devices or hit the foam roller at the hotel gym. And that's just like every single morning. It doesn't count as my workout. That's just like how I start my day. And then on a weekly basis, I try to get a massage. Usually for me, I schedule a massage on Wednesday night. You know, I have my massage service come over after my wife and kids have gone to bed. So I still get some family time. She'll pop in and usually my massage will end like 11 p.m. or midnight. But it's just like, you know, that's an amazing thing to work in each week if you can, just because the massage therapist can get into areas you really can't hit yourself with a foam roller or a lacrosse ball or something like that. So, you know, in a nutshell, test your HRV to know if you're truly recovered and kind of pay attention to that to decide how hard you're going to train that day. Work in cold, work in heat, work in something like a mineral bath, getting outside barefoot, grounding and earthing some kind of infrared light and then daily deep tissue work and at least a weekly massage. And that's for me personally, how I just, I crush it hard year round and, you know, knock on wood, stay pretty injury free and, and really don't get sick very often at all. All right. Well, that is a, that is a long list. I'm sure now that I'm going to let everyone absorb all the things that they need to pay attention to. Obviously you do this at a, at a very high level. And I think some people are going to ha- have to figure out which things work for them, which things don't. And that there's probably like hack versions of, of each yeah. of these. I mean, honestly though, like I hear that excuse a lot. Like I, I'm not trying to be rude by saying it's yeah, excuse, no. but like, you know, I work, like I mentioned 12 to 16 hours a day. Like I'm, I'm running a two companies full time. I'm writing books. I'm on a plane twice a week and I just squeeze all this stuff in. And yeah, like I don't watch a lot of Netflix and I'm not wasting a lot of time. You know, I don't, watch movies on the plane. I sleep instead and I'm extremely busy. But even when I'm talking about stuff like, you know, the sauna or a massage or, you know, laying on a PMF table, like during a massage, I'm listening to team calls from my employees or audiobooks or podcasts to help me catch up on a topic. I got to study for the next day. If I'm in the sauna, I'm like catching up on a book that I need to read. If I'm on the PMF table, sometimes I'm banging out emails on my phone. So, you know, I figure out a way a lot of times to combine my recovery or any of these other things I'm talking about with productivity. So it's not like I'm spending my whole life just like, you know, (laughs) recovering. I'm instead just like living my actual life. Like even just during this past hour, I've been talking to you. I've walked three miles right, (laughs) on my treadmill, right? So I've gotten my aerobic activity in because I've been walking the whole time I've been talking to you, right? So if you start to stack these things, there's no reason you can't, you know, still be a productive individual and have a quote real life and be a busy, you know, most of the executives I train, they're doing all this stuff too, but they're still running companies. Right. And so, so that's the idea is you just figure a way to combine this stuff with your normal productivity during the work day. That is really good advice to integrate it. I'm standing the whole time. I'm impressed. You would have heard it if I was walking three miles. So clearly it takes a lot more to get your, <laughs> your heart rate elevated. Well, Ben, what's a, and this can be singular or repeated. What's a personal and professional mistake that you've made and learned the most from? Trying to do too much myself. You know, I used to pride myself on knowing how to, whatever, program my own website, write my own PHP script for fulfilling orders and, you know, lay out the design for my books and all that jazz. And, 
you know, you started off by saying I was a Renaissance man, but I think it's, it's best <laughs> if you can to like specialize in the things that really move the dial for you and that really allow you to be most impactful and then to surround yourself with an amazing team of people who can do the rest, you know, and that, that's what books like, you know, Gary Keller's one thing or Tim Ferriss's four hour work week or any of these other books. I'm like, you know, focusing on the one thing that you're good at and outsourcing the rest or automating as much as possible really point out this idea that you can waste a lot of time just trying to micromanage everything. And I did that for the longest time. And, and now like, I don't even know how to log in my own website to change something. Like if I write an article, you know, I'll write it a lot of times in like Google and then send it over to the person who's actually laying it out and formatting it and posting it. And, you know, for the longest time I used to do it all out myself. And man, once I, once I started pretty much doing, taking anything, anything that I know does not make the most impact for me and does not fulfill my purpose the best it gets outsourced. And I mean, like, I, now I have like a full-time handyman at my house. I have somebody who goes and gets the mail out of the mailbox and opens the packages. I don't touch my own lawn. You know, I just outsource, outsource, outsource. And I'm constantly asking myself, is this something I need to be doing? And if not, like it gets outsourced within a couple of days. Well, that's very good advice. So Ben, where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, the new book I just mentioned, that's available now at boundlessbook.com. It's about 650 pages, just jam-packed with more of these biohacks and you know everything from recovery to immunity to, to sex and jet lag like you name it it's in there so that book is now out at boundlessbook.com and then if you just google my name you'll find my website and my podcast if you just google ben greenfield you'll you'll find the rest all right well ben thanks for sharing your story with us you're clearly one of the top physical performers uh, in the world today and have done remarkable world work helping others build their physical capacity and get more out of each day Awesome. Thanks for having me on, man. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Ben and his books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd appreciate a quick favor. And that's, can you leave us a review on Apple uh, Podcasts as it helps new users discover the show? You can just select the library icon, click on Elevate and scroll down to the bottom to leave the review. It only takes about 20 seconds. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. 
As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.